human race where the moment that Adam willfully disobeys God in verse number 6 where it says, and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. Everything changes from that moment on throughout the whole course of human history. From that moment, now they too begin to know what backaches are like and everything else. They begin to deteriorate physically. Uh, their life changes spiritually. They now are, are going to be finding themselves instead of being able to walk with God and to know God in an intimate way and to know God in, in sweet fellowship is that now they are only going to know separation from Him. They are only going to know despair. They're only going to know work and toil um, that is going to um, bring about many difficulties throughout their life, but certainly to our own today. It will see the downward spiral of the human race and of uh, all of the created order. And so let's read here tonight. Verse number 7 of, of Genesis chapter 3 tells us, And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? For he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. Now as we look through here, the first thing I want us to look at is the first portion of verse number 7. We're going to see their new condition. Their condition goes from being one that they knew God, walked with God, that they were certainly made in the image of God. They had this sort of innocence about them where they were in a perfect world, in a perfect relationship with God. They had perfect bodies, it seemed, but yet they were still susceptible to disobeying God. While they were innocent, they still had the potential to be sinful and vile and rebellious, and that would be the road that they chose. First of all, verse number 7 tells them the eyes of them both were opened. And the reason why both is important here, because both had sinned. We learned that certainly while Adam is the federal head of the human race, as Adam falls, so falls the rest of humanity. But Eve as well chose to eat of this. While she certainly blames the serpent and says, I was beguiled, I was tricked, I was um, lied to. Uh, he's so crafty in all of these things. She still yet chose, and I believe so, out of seeking uh, to be as wise as what the serpent told her she could be. I believe really if we look at every sin in our life, it is a sin of not just lust of the flesh and eyes and the pride of life, but it is every sin is trying to dethrone God from where he belongs and trying to place us upon the throne where he reigns. Now, first of all, there is an ironic fulfillment of what the serpent had promised them as he deceived Eve to eat of the tree. If we look back just a verse, Genesis 3, 6, the serpent tells her, Then your eyes shall be open, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. A sailhammer writes, The thrust of the story with all its simplicity lies in the tragic and ironic view it gives humanity's ill-fated quest for wisdom. Ironically, what the snake promises comes true. The man and the woman do become like God when they eat of the fruit. The irony lies in the fact that in their creation, they were already like God. The, uh, uh, like God. Uh, they had been created in His image. Chapter 1, verse 26. Genesis 1, 26 says, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth. Over all a creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. 
man had already been made in the image of God to know God, to worship God, to glorify God, to know God in a perfect and innocent way, to simply obey Him. But yet, and I believe as the author puts correctly, that humanity's ill-fated quest for wisdom. Man always wants to know more, be more, do more, to be the best of the best. Man, and even in, to some degree, in our sinful nature, always desires to be God. Sin really does do this from, from the very foundation of sin, from the very moment of sin, from the sin of the mind, the heart, and the hands, everything, outward and inward. Our sin says, without saying, that God is not God and that we belong where He belongs. That He can say and do whatever He wants, but we don't have to listen to Him because we have the full control over our own life, our own bodies, our own thoughts, everything. We are our own God. And this is the way that society has certainly gone, but sadly it's the way that many believers have gone. They go outside of His Word. They go outside of the means and the boundaries of which God has given. Uh, I often say to go outside of the book is to, to be totally out of bounds, to go outside of the Bible. And this is what our sin does. It takes us away from what God has already said, what God has already established, what God has already decreed for our life. Your desire to sin is a desire to be your own God. And wisdom, if we really understand what wisdom is, you could really boil wisdom down to faithful obedience to God. But here they were seeking wisdom outside of God. Let me ask you, is there any wisdom outside of God tonight? No. Is there even truth outside of God? No. We see, though, yet the world today, then and now, seek wisdom that can only come from God, yet they look for it in all the wrong places. They look for it in philosophy, they look for it in psychology, in religion, in a multitude of different things. They look for it in good works, they look for it in their own systems, their own ideologies, their own theology about themselves, and yet they never find true wisdom. But true wisdom is always and only found when God speaks, we listen, and then obey. That's wise living. That is what a wise person does. Wisdom here, if we are to understand it, would have been that God tells them what they can and can't do, which they only said, eat of all this. This whole garden is yours except for one tree. Don't eat of it, lest you shall surely die. What they say is, well, we want to have that wisdom that that tree brings. We want to have what that has to offer. Man always desires more here. Another commentator dealing with this verse here, he says, they had lost that blessed blindness, the ignorance of innocence, which knows nothing of nakedness. We see in the, bo- the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked. Now this is a stark contrast to just a few verses ago. Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. So before sin comes in chapter 3, were they naked? Yes. Why? Because chapter 2 says they were naked. That they just didn't um, uh, see their nakedness. They didn't understand their nakedness because to them, they were not naked. This is how things were supposed to be because sin had not come in and ruined everything. That's exactly what sin does. Sin comes in and ruins things. It takes things from how they were supposed to be and twists it, manipulates it, and, and mars it completely. Adam and Eve were ignorant of their nakedness in Genesis 2.25. They didn't know. And you don't know what you don't know, Right? Ignorance is sometimes called bliss, isn't it? Right? But we must not mistake this and go, well, if I stay ignorant, then I can just live my blissful life because we have a, have a bad side, a double-edged sword to this. Ignorance very well may be bliss, but ignorance to the things of God does not give one an excuse when you stand before God. Right? And what I mean by this is we have many today who refuse 
to grow wise in the things of God, not because they don't have the tools and the resources of the same Holy Spirit that others have, but rather they, they, because they would rather live ignorant and blissful and, and feel as if they don't have to give account or will not be accountable to those certain things. We must always strive for something deeper. But however, what happened with Adam and Eve is what they, dis- what they desired that was deeper was actually um, only to be truly found the depth if they would have just simply yielded their life to God first. They thought deeper and better could be found outside of obeying God. So Adam and Eve were ignorant of their nakedness because they were innocent before God. There was no sin. Therefore, at this point in time, they're in this sort of state of innocence where they have the potential to sin. And if one has the potential to sin, I believe that one will sin. And this is why we look at the world around us today. Society is not a, a bad society that turns good people bad. It is not a good society that turns good people bad. It, it, is, it is bad people that make a bad society. And we're bad people. That's why we have a bad society. We're bad from our very nature we're very foundation because of the fall here. And this is why we talk about the aftermath of the fall. It, it spread like, like this sort of ripple effect or, or shock wave after an earthquake and a, and a tsunami comes, the whole nine yards of wave after wave as each generation becomes more and more and increasingly and more increasingly sinful. Even to the point where just a few short chapters from now, God is going to say, this is enough, I'm going to destroy. And, and this did not take nearly as long as what one would think. About 2,000 years is is roughly what is believed from this time to uh, the time of the flood. Well, we're about 4,000 years past that, and we wonder how much longer until the Lord says, okay, done, right, enough. It's gone, but so far, and I will not allow it to go any further. Now here we look at this, and the phrase naked, the, the idea of nakedness is, is one that is very important in the Bible. Nakedness in the Bible represents sin and shame. It is as well a reminder of the sinful condition of man. As I look out tonight, I do not see anybody that is naked. Praise the Lord. Amen. Right? Amen. Why is that? Not only did you think about what outfit you were going to wear, what clothes you were going to wear, whether they matched or didn't match, and even if you cared or not. Right? Whether they were good clothes, clean clothes, dirty clothes, whatever, you just knew you had to have them clothes, okay? Now with this, right, with this, the reason why you have on clothes ultimately is because, is because you know that to walk around in your birthday suit all naked as a jaybird is not right. Why is it not right? Because not that our bodies are so sinful, but because now our bodies, our minds, our everything around us and all of creation has been so tainted and so changed that now nakedness is shameful because it bears ourselves open before everyone and everything. This is why we wear clothes. But here's what's happened. In Genesis 2.25, they go from naked with no clothes to now in chapter 3, what we're going to find is that now they're naked, realize their nakedness, and they're getting ready to try to find and make their own clothes to cover themselves. You and I tonight are covered, if you will, physically, to hide the shame of being sitting in here naked before everybody, right? It would be a shameful thing. It would be a sinful thing. We understand this from God's Word. We understand it from our own psychology. You ever notice the difference between a 3-year-old and a 30-year-old? Three-year-old don't care about being naked in front of anybody, right? A three-year-old don't care if they're walking around, right? Here I am. They don't care. Thirty-year-old in their right mind does care, right? Uh, and it's sad that we even have to put that that little uh, spot on there. But in their right mind, okay, we're not talking 
talking about any and other outside influences. But in their right mind, the 30-year-old knows, I can't do this. Not only because there's laws against it, because of the sin and the shame that is there. Much like that child, there is the same sort of innocence of which Adam and Eve had in Genesis 2.25, where they were yet in this state of innocence where they did not know sin yet, so therefore their nakedness that they were living and walking around in without any clothes, they didn't have on nice clothes, didn't have on khaki, shirt and tie, they didn't even have on pajama bottoms, nothing. But it was okay because sin had not come in and ruined everything. Nakedness throughout the Bible, we see this. There is shame when there are those who are stripped down naked and bore open before everybody. We think about the Lord Jesus during His crucifixion, how many of these uh, things are reoccurring, how we see the shame and and the despising that that, uh, being naked before people does. The first thing that they become aware of after their sin is their own nakedness before each other and then before God. We don't know, as we've talked about, how long this takes for the fall. We don't know how long in between chapter 2 and chapter 3 we got. For all we know, it could be an hour. For all we know, it could be years. We, we, don't, we don't actually know. And that's okay to not know that, right? We contend you can have your own opinion about that, and that's perfectly fine. But at the end of the day, we don't know, and it only matters but so much. What we do know is up to this point, there's never been a time where Eve hides behind a bush because she says, I don't want you to see me like this. I'm not clothed. Nor is there a time where Adam has to look at his wife, whom he loves, whom God had given to him. And he has to say, honey, I, not right now, I'm, I'm, I'm naked. Right? This isn't okay. Never, because the two are one in the flesh, and as well as the nakedness and the idea of nakedness being a bad thing is not yet there. All they know is they don't have clothes on, and they don't even know what clothes are at this point. But notice what sin immediately does. Immediately they know, I need to be clothed. I don't know what clothes are, but I know I need them. Right? There's this sort of point in probably in every child's life as well where they hit that certain age. And for different kids, it's different ages where they go, I've got to start putting on clothes. It's not okay for me to do this. Why is that? I believe it's because we reach this place where we understand what nakedness means before others. But what's even more important is our nakedness before the Lord. Kidner writes, Man saw the familiar world and spoilt it now in the seeing, projecting evil onto innocence and reacting to good with shame and flight. What happens here is they're living in the same Garden of Eden, but it doesn't look so good anymore. They got the same spouse that they've always had, and that spouse was a perfect spouse up until this point, and now that spouse don't look so good no more. But this is what sin does. Sin taints the creation which God had made good. Sin ruins relationships. Sin brings about the nakedness and the discomfort and the union between husband and wife and between man and his God. Sin brings shame and separation before God and before man. As Kidner writes, they are now brought to this place where they are going to react with shame and flight. Meaning they're going to be shamed, full of shame, and then run. To run and hide. There is no going back to innocence after the knowledge of sin is revealed. As we get into the second portion, the, the concealment, it covers the second portion of verse number 7 and as well as verse number 8. Their condition is now one that is sinful. Their condition is now one that is naked before each other, where they're ashamed of each other, and they're ashamed before God. But here's what happens in verse number 8. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. 
Uh-oh. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. I want to stop here for just a moment and say that sin makes you do stupid things. Sin itself is a stupid thing. It's illogical to go against what God has said, isn't it? If God has said, don't eat this or you'll die, the dumb, illogical thing is to then eat of that thing and die. God has said something. He has sealed something. He has decreed it. There's no going back. There's no bargaining with God. Go, well, how about if I just have a bite? How about if it's just a one and done thing? No, God has said this. It has finalized it completely. Here what we find in this concealment is what A.W. Tozer calls fig leaf religion. This fig leaf religion, realizing their sin, their shame, and the nakedness, they get straight to work to cover themselves. This sounds awful familiar, doesn't it? The moment that you sin, the first thing that you want to do is run and go tell everybody, isn't it? No. How about this? The first thing that you, when you sin, the first thing you want to do is go tell God about it. No. I ain't that spiritual neither. That's okay. What do we do? We want to cover that thing up. We want to cover it up so that we, no one knows, no one sees, and if, if I don't get found out, and it didn't happen, right? What nobody knows, nobody knows. What God don't know, right? What, what they don't know won't hurt them, right? However, let me ask you, the last time that you tried to cover your sin, were you actually successful? Maybe halfway. You might have hid it from someone you love. You might have hid it from a co-worker. You might have hid it from everybody else on the planet. and Nobody might have ever known. But were you successful unless you were able to fool God? See, we can't fool God, can we? Here's the illogical thing about sin. Instead of retreating to the one person that can fix the problem, sin has us run away from the one that can solve the problem. Sin, in its illogical thought process, instead of running to the one who gives grace and mercy, runs from grace and mercy. Sin wants us and calls us and desires that we would cover things up and work ourselves to where we can feel that we've covered it up and that we're okay before God and before others. Sin itself, disobedience to God, is totally illogical, but it leads down a terrible, illogical path. Every sinner tries to cover sin. There's not a single one that doesn't. We try to cover every single sin. Not just a sin, but all the sins. Big, small, and everything in between. Here, Sorensen says, the word translated as aprons has a literal sense of a loincloth or a garment covering one's genitals. Though there evidently was no sexual element in their sin, nevertheless, with the advent of sin, the exposure of their private parts became a source of shame and embarrassment. Right, we see in gas stations signs that say, shirt and shoes required, right? Well, here, even that gives a whole lot of nakedness, don't it, right? If you take that pretty literal. Now think about this though. When we look here, the first thing that they do is they go to cover themselves. What is believed and what's often shown in little Sunday school curriculum and classrooms and things about Adam and Eve is we always see them with, normally Eve has long brown hair. Adam has some sort of brown curls. They normally have blue and green eyes for some reason. We don't know why, but they do, right? That's how they paint them. And they stick them behind a tree and some shrubbery to cover everything where you can see some shoulders 
or maybe some feet sticking out, right? Nothing else. Here, they immediately go and they find a way to try to cover themselves up with these aprons to cover what they believe to be the most naked thing about them. Now, what's interesting to note is that there are countless people groups in the world today that are in the jungles, out in the middle of nowhere where no one has even yet reached them. And what they often do is while they might not wear many clothes, they wear enough at times. Something as simple as a loincloth to cover themselves because they naturally know that there are certain things and certain things that bring about or allude to our nakedness. Guzik writes, and I believe he is right on here, he says, this is not because there is something intrinsically dirty in our sexuality. Let me pause it for just a moment. Remember, it is God who is the one who designed Adam and Eve to procreate, right? Through sexual union, mind you. Sex outside of marriage, dirty. Sex inside of marriage is a beautiful picture of what God has designed man to do, which is to unite together, the two become one flesh, and to procreate, to be fruitful and multiply. That was given in chapters 1 and in chapters 2 to this newly married couple of what they were called to do. So it is not that sex is some sort of evil thing or that the sexual uh, organs are some sort of evil thing. However, it is both of those things tied together that can be used for evil things. And we certainly see that today, don't we? And it did not take long, by the way, for us in Genesis to see that. As a matter of fact, in just a couple of chapters, God is going to have enough because there's going to be plenty of that running rampant. Later on in Genesis, there's going to be a whole group of people where God says, no, enough is enough because of their sexual sins. Guzik continues, he says, but because we have both received our fallenness and pass it on genetically through our sexual reproduction, our father and his 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 father, his father, his father, right? All the way down to Adam finds themselves to be what? Sinners. And as we find throughout the book of Genesis, what is going to be important is that the man carries the seed. The seed then goes to the woman to then grow and to produce either the male or female that God will bring forth out of their womb. And specifically, we find the importance of the seed. We're going to see later on in this chapter, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. One is the seed of those who are that of the devil, if you will, those who are unfaithful or faithless. And then those, the one ultimately would be Christ, the seed of the woman, but in so those who are of the seed of faith, those who follow the Lord in faithful obedience. But we see this. You didn't inherit sin simply because at some certain age you go, well, now I've inherited it because I watched somebody do something bad on TV and I just emulated it. No, you were born a sinner because... Your parents were sinners, and two sinners make one sinner. Right? It's pretty simple math. Sinners make sinners. We're born this way. Genetically, biologically, spiritually, we are born in a sinful world with a sinful body and a sin-cursed body with a sinful nature apt to do that which is evil and wrong against God. Furthermore, in this, as we see that he had told them to be fruitful and to multiply, now the first thing that they want to do is to cover up the things that were to be used to be fruitful and multiply because now they're ashamed of those things. They're ashamed of God's command. They're ashamed of what might, what might take place, of what the future holds and everything. What religion does, it attempts to cover one's nakedness before God with personal works of atonement. But as the Bible says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Hebrews 12, 22 as well, as you can find in the Old Testament. Now what happens here 
is this foreshadows the vast difference between Cain and Abel's offering, both physically and spiritually. You say, how so? As we'll see as we get into chapter 4, right? Cain brings about some, some nice fruit and veggies, right? Abel brings about the firstling of his flock. One is blood, the other one is vegetables. Now, does this mean that God doesn't like vegetables? Okay, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about God has required and has always required the shedding of innocent blood to bring about atonement or remission or, or a covering is really the idea of atonement. This is why year after year, they would have to have the Day of Atonement to cover the sins, not only of the priest and his family, but that of the people of Israel. But this foreshadows something far even greater that Christ would be the perfect and pure Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world once and for all, that Christ would not have to come year after year and, and be crucified, but rather His sacrifice is once and for all. It is full, it is final, it is complete. We see here the importance of this, that man can work to grow crops, but crops don't cover sin. Even the blood, to a degree, covers but so much. But what we're dealing with when we talk about shedding of blood is that we're putting faith in what God has ordained, what God has said would cover sin. When the people of Israel shed the blood to bring about an atonement year by year, what they were doing was an outward act of faith in trusting the God of the covenant who had promised a land, seed, and blessing to them. If they would obey, there would be a blessing. If they would disobey, there would be a cursing. This was their continual act of faith. There is no faith in fig leaves, but there is faith in repentance. What we do not find from Adam and Eve here in this moment is repentance. What we do find in Adam and Eve at this very moment is the work of religion. The work of works. The work of trying to now be right before God. Can you imagine, all right, say this is just day number two, okay? The day before, you just walked with God and things were good. You had a great conversation. You just named the animals. All is well. You got a great wife. Things are good. But now sin has entered in. And God's about to come and you're about to have fellowship with Him. And you think He's now not going to notice your new get up, Right? Now, for many wives out there, there's often times where you've probably done something with your hair, tried new makeup, wore a new pair of earrings or shoes, and you said, do you notice anything different? And you've kind of twirled around a little bit, right? And your husband looks at you and says, no, right? Right? Is, is something different there, right? You look as beautiful as you always have, my dear, right? And that's the right answer, by the way. <laughs> But here, what we find is it's almost as if Adam and Eve think, maybe God won't notice that now we're wearing fig leaves as clothes. Maybe God isn't going to notice the apron around my waist. And it goes on. Not only do they, hide, uh, do they cover themselves, if you will, by their own works with these fig leaves that they've made, made themselves aprons. Verse 8 they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and Adam and his wife and hid themselves in the presence of the Lord, the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. Is there anywhere that you can go that the presence of God is not there? Anywhere? Nope, not a bit. He's there. He's in tomorrow. He's in yesterday. He's in today. He's in the caves. He's in the valleys. He's on the mountaintops. He's in your home. He's right here in this pew. He's everywhere. That's who God is. 
Candy commentator writes about this, and he gets a little bit more into the Hebrew to help us out a little bit. He says, in the cool of day, which literally means, translates as in the wind of the day, is believed to be towards the evening when a cooling wind generally blows. Let me pause there. Y'all ever notice that, right? That sort of sunset sort of little breeze that comes through. I, we say it a lot, Kim and I do. I, I'm not a big beach person. But you ever have, especially early spring or early fall and that evening where it's just not too hot, not too cold, and that little breeze comes through, and then you say the phrase, feels like nighttime at the beach. Y'all know what nighttime at the beach feels like, right? If you haven't, go to the beach at nighttime. But that's what it feels like. And so there's sort of this idea of the, the cool of the day, this cooling wind that blows. The, uh, the men here, and what he describes by the men here, is not that there's two men, but men is in man and woe men, okay? Uh, out of man, mankind. Uh, have broken away from God, but God will not and cannot leave them alone. He comes to them as one to another man. This was the earliest form of divine revelation. They do not have the written word of God, but yet what they have is a spoken word of God that God told Adam. Adam is to tell Eve that God is going to walk with them, will bless them as long as they continue to obey Him, but yet there will be death if they disobey Him. Instead of something just having the, the Bible, rather what they've got is direct speaking to the Lord. We find this throughout the book of Genesis as well, how God talks to His people. Go, Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob. Right? The whole, all the way down through the line. It's not until much later on that the emphasis is placed upon the written Word of God, but now today, God has placed the emphasis upon the written Word of God. This is how we hear God speak, because this is how God has spoken to us. to shown us who He is, what He has done in the past, what He has done in the present, and what He's going to do in the future. Now, I have here for you in this little section, theophany or Christophany. Okay? So what we understand here is that here, at perhaps what it seems to be implied is the evening uh, time. It is not necessary, but it is certainly um, implied that God comes to have fellowship with His creation. This seems to be a pattern because they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool day, walking, and it's the idea of it's as if they hear His footsteps coming. It is as if they, they know His presence is being brought forth. This is the same sort of idea that we find at Mount Sinai, right? God comes, and the people know God is there. Why? Because the cloud descends, His presence overwhelms the mountain, um, even to the point where in Exodus, as God is about to give the law, they tell Moses, you talk to us, not Him, because we're afraid of Him. So what happens here? Adam and Eve don't go and go, oh, we've got to find God. He's going to make this better. He'll give us real clothes. He'll make this right. He'll tell us what happened. Rather, what do they do? They don't want Him talking. They don't want to be anywhere near Him. They run to hide behind a tree. Can you imagine this? Hiding behind a tree? Much like a child, right? We think about this. I can't see you. You can't see me. Right? There's this age for children when they play hide and go seek you can play hide and go seek right in front of them just like this and they ain't got a clue they're just peekaboo is just childlike hide and go seek nobody's got to count nobody's really got to hide because if i can't see you can't see me and here what sin has done is it has blinded their hearts their minds and their eyes and the logical thinking of their brain that tells them that somehow they can get by and, and hide from god behind the same trees mind you that god spoke into existence and somehow they're going to hide behind that now, theophany here, 
is the temporary revealing of God's manifest presence, much like we see at Mount Sinai or, or perhaps the burning bush. Then we have what is called a Christophany, which is an appearance of Jesus outside of the incarnation of the New Testament. Now, I, I believe here this to be, as we find God walking in the cool of the day, if you will, to meet with his people, I believe this to be a, a Christophany, meaning the Lord Jesus walking amongst his people. We find a similar instance in times throughout the book of Genesis, which we'll certainly point out, uh, of some of these theophanies, Christophanies, uh, over in Daniel with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in, in, the, in, the, in the fiery furnace, right? Where Nebuchadnezzar looks in and says, well, we put three of them in there, but there's a fourth one like the Son of God in there. Now, Jesus is called in Colossians 1.15 the image of the invisible God. So for an Adam and Eve to be able to see God well, the Bible says, no man has seen God and lived. But yet Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Because it is Jesus who is the one who is the Word made flesh, which will happen later on. This is before that takes place in the sense of the incarnation, the humbling of Jesus coming to this world to die for sinners. This is the idea of Jesus who is the only one who makes the invisible visible. The invisible God is now made manifest and made visible to them as He walks with them. And we think about the song in the garden, right? And He walks with me, talks with me, the, the whole thing, right? Here we see in the garden, I, I firmly believe this to be a Christophany. Each theophany or Christophany in the Old Testament is serving as a foreshadowing picture, though, of the condescension of Jesus' incarnation as a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. To go from the one who is before all things, who by him all things consist, the one who is the Word made flesh, the one who in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, the same who created, was the instrument of creation, is the same one then with those same little hands would then be cuddled and coddled by his virgin mother. There in Bethlehem. To go from glory to a cradle and eventually all the way to a cross. But what we find is that from the very foundation of Genesis to the very end of Revelation is that this Bible is the divine revelation of God. And what it reveals to us is God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus Christ. God in the flesh. Everything points and weaves in and out, bringing us to the place where Jesus would be crucified, resurrected, and one day coming again for His own people to reconcile all things to the blood of His cross. Whether they be things invisible or visible, thrones, beings, principalities, or powers. Furthermore, we see the illogicalness of now they flee to these trees. Salhammer writes, they flee to the trees Throughout this chapter and the previous one, the trees play a central role in depicting man's changing relationship with God. First, in chapters 1 and 2, the fruit trees are signs of good, uh, excuse me, are signs of God's bountiful provision. Remember, chapters 1 and 2, God says, you may freely eat, right? You may freely eat is, is giving a freedom, a permission. It is giving a, a bountiful blessing. Like, all of this is yours, if you will. Then, he continues on, he says, then at the beginning of chapter 3, the trees are the ground for inciting the man and woman to rebellion and the place where the rebels seek to hide from God. Not only would it be in the trees where Adam and Eve find themselves rebelling against God, 
but it would be amongst the trees that they find themselves running from God, hiding from Him. The trees are both a place where God offers His blessing, but yet a place where man runs from the, the curse and the fall itself, of which they have brought upon themselves by eating of the one tree that God said not to. In Genesis 3, the fruit of the tree brings sin and a place to try and hide from God. But ultimately, all that would come from it would be a punishment. There is death that would come. But then, in Galatians 3.13, I'll read this for us tonight so you don't have to, but you can turn if you'd like. I'm just going to read it for just a second. Galatians 3.13 tells us this, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree. There is another tree that is being yet alluded to. As we've seen it already in Genesis, there's a tree of life. To a degree, this foreshadows and looks to the tree of life that is Mount Calvary, that is the cross of Jesus, that offers freedom and life to all who would come and believe upon Him, to all who would freely be cleansed by His blood once and for all. There is a, a mercy tree, if you will, that offers God's grace and mercy to all of humanity, to all who would come. He will in no wise cast out, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The tree is a place where Christ has made a curse for us so that we would be redeemed. We would be reconciled. We would have our, our, our sins purged and our freedom bought where we would find salvation. Where they found a hiding place from God in those trees, at least what they thought, you and I find redemption. But not in trees of our own making, not in trees of our own carving, but rather in the cross, the old rugged cross of Jesus. Every human effort to cover our sin, it's, it's totally futile to try to cover up our sin, to try to make a way with fig leaves or running from God. And by the way, you can only run from God for so long. You can only hide for so long. This is why there are those who um, think about the evil doers in the world. They will only get by with it but for so long. I believe that Johnny Cash and many others who, of course, sing the song, you can run on for a long time, right? Sooner or later, right? Think about this with God. God saw through the fig leaf. God saw through the trees because He's made the trees where they got the fig leaves from to try to cover themselves and make their own apron. God sees even further than that. He sees beyond the, the, tr the trees and the leaves of the trees. He sees the heart of man that has now rebelled against Him. What we see is, David Guzik aptly puts, this shows that Adam and Eve knew that their attempt to cover themselves failed. They didn't proudly show off their fig leaf outfits. They knew their own covering was completely inadequate and they were embarrassed before God. You would think if they knew that the fig leaves were going to cover it and be okay, that they would step out and say, oh, God, here, here we are. Something's happened. We, we have to wear these aprons now. Is this okay? Does this look right to you? Instead they go, we're covered, but yet they still feel they have to cover themselves up even more from the presence of God. Why? Because sin is so grotesque, sin is so unholy, that to be even in the very presence of God makes them wish that they would probably just combust because 
Here they are, and they're faced now for the very first time with fear. Not the healthy fear of the Lord that brings us to obedience, but the fear of God knowing this is my judge, my jury, and my executioner. He has given His law. I have disobeyed, and I must die because He said that's what's going to happen. And now I'm going to die naked, clothed in my own works, my own apron of fig leaves, hiding behind a tree. How sad the situation has gotten. That they hear the voice of the Lord or they feel His presence coming to find them and they run and they hide. This is exactly what sin does. To the lost soul, they continue to run away from God, not knowing that it is only He that can bring about forgiveness and restoration and peace. They find themselves knee-deep in, in religion and waist-deep in sinfulness and perversion of the world, still trying to fill that void in their life that only God can take care of, that only the Gospel can fill. But sadly, there's many Christians that do the exact same thing. What happens when the Christian sins? We try to make our aprons, and then we try to run and hide, never allowing ourselves the opportunity of what God gives to us, which is the opportunity to repent to confess our sins. And the Bible tells us that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Times when I read this passage, I wonder what would have happened if verse number 8 says, And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife ran to the God of grace who could bring about restoration. Instead, they run. Something for us tonight, and we're going to end off here because I don't have enough time to get started and I'm starting to feel it. <laughs> but this tonight. For you, dear believer, do not in your sin run from God. Instead, run to Him. Running from God or covering up your sin will never get you any closer to God nor will it bring you peace and comfort at night. Instead, all it will do is cause you to want to cover yourself up with more fig leaves or to get further and further from God. And that's exactly what sin does and that's exactly what Satan desires. It is God who says, Come unto Me. I will give you rest. Come unto Me. There's life. Tonight, I want us to take refuge in the fact that knowing that what we're about to see as we move forward in this is certainly... Next, in verses 9 to 13, this big confrontation that takes place. But that God comes and will be gracious to his creation. He will be merciful to them, even though they deserve not grace nor mercy. And this is the great promise to you and I that if God is gracious and merciful to the very first sinners that deserved to die and go to hell, he is gracious and merciful to every other soul that is alive today. But what is needed to be said to this lost and dying world as that there is a God that they must stop running from and that they must run to. He is waiting with outstretched arms, nail-pierced hands that offer forgiveness, and redemption, and hope. I want to give you this illustration tonight <clears throat> to hopefully bring that home. Vody Bauckham, <clears throat> this is his own illustration from his own personal life, and so I certainly can't tell it as he can. But he describes a time on a preaching engagement where he was with one of his sons. He brought one of his sons along. His son has an allergy. I believe it was to some sort of shellfish sort of thing. 
and they eat. He doesn't eat shellfish, but he was around it just enough to where, boom, he catches this sort of attack on his own system where now he's swelling up, he's having a hard time breathing, he's starting to cough. And what his son does is he, his son runs and goes and hides in the bathroom and his, his dad knocks, son, are you okay? I'm fine, I'm fine. Coughing and wheezing, he's getting worse and worse. Son, are you okay? I'm fine, just, just go away, just go away, I'll be fine. Son, you need to open the door because only I can help you. Dad is there waiting with the remedy, with the EpiPen, ready to make this, this shock come out, ready to have this reaction come to a screeching halt. Son, you've got to open up. You've got to open up. You've got to let me in. Eventually the son realizes it and does. The son's alive and well because of that. You think what you and I do is God has the remedy, His grace and His mercy. We run, we hide, we lock the door, we punish ourselves, or we flee from God thinking that we're too far gone now and God can't save us, God can't redeem us, God can't use us. But yet what we find here in this very first passage, at this very first sin, and what we'll see as we study more, God is always full of grace and mercy for His people. Run to Jesus and live. Do not cover yourselves up with your own works or your own thought or your own atoning because you can't do it. And do not run from God. Rather, let His grace draw you in that you may be made whole. Tonight, may we trust in our gracious and merciful Lord. May we trust not in our works of aprons and fig leaves nor in our running from God, but may we trust simply that Christ and His righteousness is enough to cover us, to clothe us, and it cleanse us forever and forever. Let us pray. Gracious God, we come to you this night grateful for your word, grateful for the truths that are found in it. God, I pray that you would help us tonight, each one of us, Lord, as we find ourselves in a world of sin and often choosing sin. God, that we would not cover ourselves up or run away from you, but Lord, rather that we would run to you to find forgiveness and grace. Lord, that we would find true repentance, that we would be full of faith, full of courage, full of strength in you tonight. God, I pray that you would go with us Use us, help us to invite folks to revival, and even more so invite people to Christ. Lord, I pray, God, that you would draw us near to your heart, and Lord, that we would chew on these truths, Lord, that we would might trust you and grow in grace and knowledge and faith of you, Lord, that we might walk boldly, that we might walk faithfully, we might walk by faith and not by sight in this dark and weary world. Lord, we love you, we thank you for this time. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.